0: Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Matthew Taylor, the RSA's Chief Executive, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to today's online event as part of our Bridges to the Future series, exploring ideas to shape change in the post-COVID world. I'm delighted to have the chance to talk this afternoon to two very special guests. Annalise Dodds is Labour MP for Oxford East, In April this year, she was appointed Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer, the first ever woman to hold that role. Martin Sandbu is European economics commentator for the Financial Times and author of a timely new book, The Economics of Belonging, a radical plan to win back the left behind and achieve prosperity for all. So, Annalise, Martin, I'm delighted that you're... uh, coming to this event for us and thank you for sharing your time with us because I know how busy. Annalise, you have got a very big political job and Martin, you're promoting your new book so we're really delighted that you've given us a bit of time uh, today. The the other bill of context for our conversation is that we want to explore some of the themes uh, in the RSA's new Future of Work Centre report. That's a report called the Blueprint for Good Work eight ideas for a new social contract it's the report that proposes a range of policy solutions to meet the twin challenges of work transforming technologies and rising economic security economic security insecurity which was rising before the crisis and of course is going to be a whole lot worse uh, in its aftermath so to to start our conversations I, i want to say something which might be controversial, given your job, at least, and your analysis, Martin. And, that, and that's this: that in some ways, the kind of agenda around improving working lives was did have some momentum coming into this crisis. The uh, national living wage had got to the stage where I think, uh, according to the Resolution Foundation, we have fewer people in low pay than we've had for forty years, and the government is still formally committed to that living wage rising to the the point at which we have no low pay because it will reach the level of two thirds of medium uh, earnings. We saw some uh, reforms uh, which resulted from my own report, uh, Good Work to Theresa May, and the government is committed to an employment bill which will take further some of those, some further of those recommendations, including establishing a single enforcement body. Uh, And the chancellor, of course, when he unveiled his, self-employment support package talked about the need to think again about the way we tax self-employment and potentially the entitlements that go with self-employment so there was quite a lot of momentum behind these ideas so my first question and I'll start with you Alice is this is the immediate danger that we've got that in a context of high unemployment the Commitment to improving working lives will be abandoned because it will feel as though the only priority is getting people back into work of any kind at all. Uh, I'll start with you, Annalise.
0: Yes, I think that is potentially a danger. And in fact, we've seen following previous crises that sometimes the emphasis has been on getting people into any job, no matter how uh, low in quality that job might be and the poor terms and conditions that might go along with it. And I would say, of course, this is coming at a time when the incidence of in-work poverty has actually been increasing. So there are big, big challenges there. Um, but I am, I'm not saying this to be sycophantic towards you, Matthew, but you know, I really agreed with what you said in your blog recently about this, that there isn't a trade-off between um, more jobs and good jobs. Um, and I think that's particularly because of the productivity challenge that we've had in the UK for a very long time. Um, We already saw in many cases that are broadly that our businesses were relatively labor heavy, that we hadn't seen the investment in capital going in or the growth in that investment that occurred in many other nations. So we need to be focusing on good quality jobs into the future. I think that means critically a focus on yes, both investment, but also skills and a number of the coordinative mechanisms that this uh, report, that's been produced, the blueprint for good work, starts to investigate. Um, and I think you know trade unions are going to be critical actors in developing uh, those policies into the future.
1: So it's interesting to me, Alice, because when I worked for uh, the Blair uh, uh, government, I, I'd always been interested in work quality. It's something that I've talked about for decades. And I used to try and raise this issue. And although, of course, that Labour government did a lot of really important things, the minimum wage and uh, improvements in uh, 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 maternity, paternity uh, provision and flexibility at work, broadly speaking, when I talked about work quality, then colleagues in the Treasury and DWP, Department of Worker Pensions, their view was that this was a dangerous distraction from what was the government policy at that stage, which was summed up simply in the terms work first. And and that's what gave rise, for example, to quite a stringent conditionality regime in our benefit systems. And that was based upon an analysis that said that almost any job is better than no job in terms of your kind of life chances. So I'm interested, that you don't think that there will be any return to that kind of sense, which is, you know, with what, maybe three million more unemployed, that we just have to put these issues like... I mean, it's interesting. I think even the chair of the Low Pay Commission has said that maybe we need to look at whether or not we can afford to raise the minimum wage, for example. So do do you you not see that trade-off at all?
0: Well, I think some people will say there's that trade-off. Matthew, what I was trying to say is there should not be... You know, we shouldn't be uh, viewing there as a trade-off because certainly in the medium to long term, if we see a proliferation of low quality work with businesses not investing in skills or indeed in you know in those physical elements that can provide additional productivity then we'll diminish will be diminishing the strength of our economy um, and ultimately having an even slower recovery than what we would do otherwise so I'm sure there will be some who will say, well, the point is we just need to be getting people into any kind of work. Now, we know that work does tend to make uh, people feel like they have much more dignity than they did previously, but equally, I think what this crisis has exposed is that very many people are working in incredibly difficult conditions in ways which really don't promote their dignity, in ways which they, they can't plan for any kind of a family life when they're uh, you know, um, lacking in any kind of stability and security around their future hours and so forth. Um, now, this crisis should not be a reason to put off dealing with those problems. Um, because if, if we do that in the name of just creating jobs or promoting jobs, then we're just storing up additional problems for ourselves in in the longer run predict, particularly as i said around productivity and the productivity problems we've had in the uk
1: so so martin i i, I what what do, do you think of this challenge you wrote your book before the covid crisis um and so you wrote your book and it's a brilliant book full of fantastic recommendations but in a sense, I guess if there was an economic assumption underlying your book was that we would be in a kind of reasonably tight labour market. The issue of the quantity of work would not be an immediate and pressing concern. Now that's shifted. So I'm interested, Martin, how you think the debate may now feel different over the next, you know, let's say it takes two or three years to recover, how the debate will be different.
2: Well, you know, to answer that, if I can start by broadening out before narrowing it back into that, because you've both made some very important points. I want to add that this is a sort of much bigger phenomenon than a particular British one. It's also a very old phenomenon. So the the problem of sort of bad jobs, of where the good jobs went, that's been going on for about four decades uh, since the late 1970s, pretty much. And it's been happening in a lot of countries, including countries with very different labor markets than the UK. So you think of continental Europe, Maybe there haven't been a lot of these precarious jobs, but there's been higher unemployment. And there has also been, while there have been protections for the majority of workers, there have been workers living in precarious situations for different reasons than in the UK, but equally harmful, very short-term contracts and so on, a sort of dual labor market where some people have had very poor and precarious conditions. Uh, and, And the third sort of big point I want to make is that these jobs are bad they also contribute to a split of our societies, because it's not everyone who suffers these indignities. It's it's quite well-defined people. It's people with lower education. It's often people from less advantaged social backgrounds. It's often minorities. It's often people in left-behind parts of the country, whereas there are people who work in cutting-edge knowledge industries in the big cities, have fantastic work conditions, right? So, this is not an it's, of course, an overall political problem, but it's, it's an overall political problem because it's split peoples apart, split populations apart. Uh, there's been this sort of bifurcation. That's where we're coming from. That's where we've been coming from for 40 years. And as you pointed out at the beginning, people had started picking up on that, at least politically, if not economically. The populists, of course, did it first. They were the ones who offered the people in precarious situations... Uh, first of all, understanding, we think the system is rigged against you and it's been rigged by these elites and vote for us and we'll blow it all up. Um, but what COVID does is I think, economically, it hits the same people again, right? the people who are already the most vulnerable, they're the ones who are affected most even by the public health crisis, they are more likely to get sick and die. Uh, but also by the lockdown, by the economic remedy to the public health crisis, they're the ones who are most likely to be furloughed or lose their job altogether or have their hours cut. Whereas again, the people who had nice office-based knowledge services jobs can basically do them from home. So, and I think we've all realized that or a lot more of us have realized that the weekly clap for carers is a recognition of that. So, So we're at a moment where You know, people have started to understand something is badly wrong in the economy. It's now clear to everyone that something is very badly wrong. And so we have a window of opportunity, I think, where there is a genuine interest. This whole rebuilding better mantra is not just a gimmick. Now, windows windows of opportunity have a tendency to close as more short-term concerns, political concerns, come on the agenda and crowd out the bigger problems. But I think for now, there is an opportunity, and not just in the UK, but everywhere, to see that there's a moment where we could have uh, a lot of change. Already, governments have shown that they can be radical when they must. Every government has done much more than anyone would have thought possible in very little time. So, so, radicalism is sort of the default now. Everyone's a radical in, in the sense of big change in little time. Um, so, so, there's a moment here, and it's really kind of up to politicians like, like Annalise, uh, but also citizens on the whole to really try to accept that if we want to change this, we need to make some big changes in the year maybe going forward. It can be done, but I don't think we have an infinite amount of time before ordinary politics comes back.
1: Well, so, Martin, let's continue uh, with that theme of the possibilities of radical change. Um, and so I would, I, I think I, I, I've i characterized this moment and in the blog that Annelise was very kind to, to mention. That is exactly how I, I said. I said there was momentum, both in terms of public opinion uh, and also, you know, in terms of policy to a certain extent behind improving people's working lives and addressing precariousness. Uh, but it's going to hit the imperatives of mass unemployment. And that's going to be the framing. That's what's going to determine. It's it's the kind of those two forces, the way they work out. Um, But in terms of these radical ideas, Martin, what would you say would be the priorities if you were advising the Chancellor now? What would you say would be the kind of radical things that he might be able to do pretty quickly, which would symbolise the fact that this agenda of addressing the kind of dual labor market precariousness ha- has not lost momentum
2: look, look we have to start with a couple of principles and i think their principles as will come out in, in your report uh, a blueprint for for good work about how quality of jobs shouldn't quantity of jobs shouldn't get in the way of the quality of jobs uh, so one principle is that you really do want to use policy in order to improve the quality of jobs. I mean, that, that, that has to be stated, right? So you need to have as a policy that you can try to aim uh, for both. Um, the second, it's not so much a principle, but but you know it's, it's something that's important to bear in mind, is that this is not just uh, an intellectual challenge for now, but it has been, it was in the past too, whether we believe there's a trade-off or not between quantity and quality of jobs. So if you don't think uh, that there's a trade-off, why would you not think that? Well, you would not think that if you think that there's policy that can improve productivity and therefore makes it possible to have better jobs. So productivity really has to be at the core of this. So as we exit the crisis, we should be doing more of what we should already have been doing more of, which is to think about what other sort of government interventions they're not just employ people, but employ them productively. So let's take just one, one very small example. You mentioned the national living wage earlier on. Uh, there were some calls back in April for the rise not to go through because of the crisis. There was a rise scheduled for April, May. The government actually let it go through. Um, there's good reason to think, but this is a new way of thinking about minimum wages, that, that raising the wage floor actually contributes to productivity. It used to be thought of. Pushing up minimum wages is simply helping some workers, but maybe there'll be fewer pay, fewer jobs for the low-paid. So maybe it's not clear that it helps. It turns out that increasing wage floors can be a way to spur productivity without losing any employment. You spur productivity because a company that has to pay more for its labour needs to make sure that that labour is economically viable. Uh, this is where I think an international comparison is useful. So you look at the Nordics. They're the countries that have navigated not just COVID, some of them at least, but but the, the last couple of decades of labor market change, better than most countries. They've always had very high wages at the bottom. In those countries, it was thanks to union. They've also had high productivity growth. People tend to think that's a paradox. I don't think it's a paradox. I think it's because you've had low wages at the bottom, high wage growth at the bottom, that companies have had an incentive to invest in machines, invest in automation, even think about better work processes, to use that labor that's becoming more expensive as efficiently as possible. I think that would be one key thing for a British government to do as we know that we're going back to an economy that looks different from where we came in anyway. There are some jobs that just won't be viable because of new public health strictures. So as you return people to work, don't try and do it on the cheap. Right? Try to encourage those jobs that are actually viable, even if they pay people decently. So, you know, push through the national living wage agenda as they seem to be doing. That's one thing. If you're going to do that, you need to support uh, the economy in other ways too. You need to try to put in place good training schemes so that people who may have to switch jobs are able to avail themselves of more productive but maybe more skills-intensive jobs. And I think you want to really make sure that you give the economy the demand support it needs for a long time. So you want the jobs to switch from the bad, precarious, low-paid ones to more sustainable and more dignified ones, higher-paid ones, higher-productivity ones. But you need to ensure still that there is enough, a high enough quantity of jobs available. So you don't want to give up quantity. But you do that by putting in place these structural incentives for the jobs that there are to be high-paid, high-productive, and a demand policy, an aggressive demand policy, whether that's the Bank of England through very low interest rates or its its you know bold deficit-covered spending from the government, so that there are enough there's enough demand for production from businesses, so that they businesses their, those businesses are willing to hire. So you need, you know, move the wage floors up put in place investor incentives for training and the facilities for people to acquire new skills and keep the demand pressure high for a good while into the recovery. You know, don't take your foot off the accelerator too soon.
1: Um, well, Alex, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that you wouldn't disagree with much of that. But um, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a real challenge being a senior member of the shadow cabinet when the election is potentially four and a half years away because if you have a good policy a popular policy the government can steal it and if you have an unpopular policy it can be hung around your neck so i'm kind of interested partly in your response to, to what martin said whether you agree that those are the priority measures right now but also more broadly what's going to be your approach to economic policy making uh, given the kind of perils of policy making in opposition
0: yeah, I mean, I have to say, certainly around many of the um, critical policy issues now, if the government uh, stole my ideas, I'd be very, very pleased indeed. <laughs> because I think we'd be dealing with the, the current situation uh, uh, quite a bit better and more quickly. But anyway, um, I mean, I, I agree. I did agree genuinely with with quite a bit of what what Martin said. But I suppose I I would also try and. Um, broaden this out a little bit to some of the themes that are talked about quite a bit in this blueprint, but then in some of the other work that the RSA has done as well. Um, and, and maybe think about, you know, some of how we conceive of productivity as well within the UK, um, because I, I would argue that in addition to some of what Martin was talking about, um, we also need to consider, you know, how we'll deal with some of those kind of long-term Structural challenges for the UK, um, it, you know, the kind of regional inequalities and in infrastructure, those kinds of matters, where, you know, ho- hopefully a stimulus package might help to deal with some of them uh, at the same time as promoting good quality um, employment. Uh, but then we, we also need to think much more intensively about parts of the economy that are so often forgotten in these kind of debates. Um, I mean, one would be Obviously, around the, the caring economy, and there's kind of interesting discussion about this in, in the Blueprint report. I mean, actually, you know, currently, there's a view that for those who deliver home-based care, say a 15-minute appointment um, is delivering good quality care. Um, uh, and there, there isn't really a consideration about um, really the long-term impacts of that. Now, um, having more labour in that sector, more employment in that sector, which is of good quality, um, you know, maybe some measurement, measurements might suggest that that would be overall reducing output, but if it means that a home carer can spend a bit longer with someone that they're helping, that they're not rushing in you know, giving them a cup of tea, giving them a quick wash and barely able to speak to them, you know, clearly the output would be far higher quality as well. Um, So I think we need to be considering a whole whole range of ways in which um, both kind of labour intensity can be increased in in a meaningful way, decent jobs that aren't just, um, uh, I I suppose, um, you know, trying to create jobs for the sake of it. But then in in parallel with that, how we can improve the quality of what's produced in the first place, especially in the public sector. Um, And that is something that obviously government can do directly when it sets its mind to it. Can we turn
1: uh, briefly to to one of the specific ideas uh, in the Blueprint report and an idea which the RSA has talked about for some time, um, and that's universal basic income. Now, it's really important to say at the outset the the problem with the debate about UBI is that there are lots of very different types of UBI and then people get asked, do they support UBI? And the question, the only intelligent answer to that is, well, which UBI? What are you talking about? So the RSA has a very kind of modest model, which is costed, um, uh, which is pretty low, uh, but is really designed not to to create a world where nobody has to work, but actually to strengthen work incentives so people don't lose their benefits as they get work, but also to reduce a sense of insecurity and to get rid of the rather pernicious impact of conditionality in the welfare uh, system. And it's kind of interesting to me that, again, before this crisis, if you read the runes in terms of DWP policy, they had moved a long way away from the kind of really strict conditionality regime that applied in in the past. So if we don't talk about UBI, we talk about a minimum income guarantee. We said, look, every citizen needs to be able to have a minimum income, you know, not requiring them to be able to do anything, but just as a kind of as a citizen right to tackle insecurity, but also to strengthen actually their incentives to work or to try and set up a business or whatever. Now, Annelies, you have said publicly recently that you're not a fan of UBI, but is that because of the rather idealistic notions of UBI out there, or do you have a deeper um, resistance to the idea of some kind of minimum income guarantee for all citizens?
0: So so I would say I think a lot of the criticisms that are frequently levelled against UBIs and I agree with you, you know, there, there's a plethora of different um, approaches to this. Many of those criticisms, I think, are completely off beam. And, um, you know, I very much agree with you that some of the um, uh, suggestions that have been made around um, lack of work incentive, for example, just do not stack up in relation to many of the models that have been put forward. Um, I, I think for, for me, I suppose there, there, there are kind of two key concerns. The first Relates to the fact that, and it's an obvious point, but people have very different needs, and those different needs can be very expensive to meet um, if they're to be met properly and morally they should be. If we're talking about someone with a a severe disability, for example, which means they can't work to the same extent as others, if we're talking about a single parent with a number of children, those children should be supported, somebody who lives in high cost housing. So For me, I I suppose, quite often there are suggestions that, well, a UBI could just cover all of that social security, just parcel it all together, and then divide it amongst everybody. Well, quite frankly, I don't need as much support as somebody who might be in those very, very needy circumstances. And my view is, um, you know, as a socialist, I think it's their right to get that support when they have no alternative. Um, So then if we say, that funding must still be provided for those needs, which I I know that the RSA has has, has rightly advocated, the overall quantum that needs to be devoted to a UBI scheme becomes very, very large indeed. I mean, I I noted in in, in the report that um, in the long run, that could be amounting to about 90 billion for the whole of the UK. And I think, you know, this is an interesting discussion to have, but we surely need to think very carefully about what other uses that very significant amount of funding could go to, which could have a very big impact on people's life chances. Um, you know, I mean, it's an obvious point, but I look at what's happened to our education system over recent years and how so many children are being let down because of inadequate funding, there, um, I look at the crisis that we have in housing in the UK, which actually drives many of those needs because we have an inadequate supply of decent, affordable housing, um, and surely we need to consider that kind of very significant sum in relation to those other needs. Um, and so, that, I suppose that's where my um, my concerns coming from. As I say, I think many of the, I suppose, the criticisms the right in relation to UBI are completely off-beam and disproved by evidence. But I think there are some pretty big questions from the, the, the left and the progressive center that we need to engage with.
1: Well, I, that's gonna be a really interesting debate that I hope we can continue to have with you, uh, uh, Annalise. But m- Martin, um, turning to you. You, I think, are uh, uh, enthusiastic about- Very much in a favor, yeah. Some form of UBI, but can I broaden the question in the sense of, you don't, I'm not sure you use this phrase in the book. In fact, you talk a lot about Roosevelt rather than talking about beverage. But there is a kind of sense of a kind of be- beverage 2.0 to your plan. We have, over the years, and not so much in Britain as in America, but to a certain extent, we have come to view the welfare system in very negative terms. You know, the, the right caricatures it as as kind of um, as, as as removing people's incentives, and you know that, that kind of caricature. Um, but also, the left has been very critical of the way it treats people and, you know, particularly the conditionality regime that people experience. That, that, that dealing with the state, if you were unemployed, is, is, is very difficult, and all the problems with the implementation of universal credit. You've talked about Scandinavia, where they have this model of flex security. So, as well as talking about UBI, Martin, I'm interested in your kind of thoughts about what, what should be the nature of a welfare system that we have for people in the 21st century? What should be the principles that underpin it?
2: Look, uh- The main principle is also one reason why I'm in favor of of UBI. For me, UBI is not about poverty reduction. It's not even a sort of welfare and benefit issue. It's about empowerment, essentially. It's about guaranteeing a certain independence and empowerment at the individual level. Basically, the power to say no. So, one way of understanding what I call the the end of economic belonging, but you could call it the precariat, you could call it the problem precarious work, undignified work. A lot of people don't have the power to say no to what should be unacceptable work conditions or for that matter, living conditions. That's the principle that has to orient both Uh, A narrow discussion about UBI and also a broad discussion about the welfare system in general. So why I'm in favor of an unconditional sort of payment and, and not a minimum income guarantee, which sounds like it's sort of withdrawn when you start to make more, but something, you know, a real UBI is that it lets everyone have the opportunity to say no to unacceptable shift unpredictability, or unacceptable abuse at work, or unacceptably low wages, and it will force employers to up their game. A little bit like a minimum wage does, it forces employers to do better, to employ people more productively, and creates the right incentives for productivity, as well as giving security and empowerment and the individual level. Uh, the problem with the welfare system, as it works in, in most countries, really, is that it was designed you know, in the area of mass industrial employment, sort of on the assumption of full employment for male breadwinners. So, and it's never really been updated properly to a situation where you can't uh, expect lifetime employment and you have to expect some time in between jobs, and where increasingly work is organized on a more gig-fragmented basis. So some of the big problems in the UK economy, but many other economies, is that some people live with very erratic incomes, even if they work, and even if they work a lot of hours. So there's unpredictability and, and, uh, and volatility in their incomes. That's bad for productivity. It's bad for health. It's bad for stress and family cohesion. It's bad for a lot of things. That's the sort of thing we have to get away from. But currently, the welfare system, partly for sort of moral ideological reasons, it's largely based on conditioning things on being in work. You know, you have to work, but then we'll help you top up a bit. But it has to be means tested so that the undeserving don't get money. But the effect of that is that if you go in and out and work, the welfare system can amplify the insecurity and the volatility. And if you have a chance to improve your condition by yourself, you'll be penalized by that because benefits will be withdrawn. Those are the ways most Western welfare states have actually been organized and still are. So, so UBI is one way to radically shift from that. I think we need to get it to a point where people do have uh, the wherewithal to safely, and I mean that in a psychological sense as well as an economic sense, live in a very shifting economy. That's what the economy looks like now. It will change fast. We will have to shift between jobs. We will have to work in more fragmented ways. And those those are good things if that can be done safely for each individual. So we want the welfare system to work for a a, a more fragmented and shifting and unpredictable reality because that's how a productive economy is today. It's not the factories of the 1950s and 60s, right? So the welfare system has to adapt to that as well. But that can be done, I think.
1: There are so many directions that I'd like to take the conversation <laughs> in. We're running out of time. Um, let, me, let me go somewhere I wasn't expecting to go, but, but, but it's been kind of provoked by some of the things that you've said. Um, it, it's interesting, this point about precarious work, Uh, and productivity, because actually one of the kind of slightly counterintuitive uh, realities of our labour market before the crisis, something that Andy Haldane had talked about, I'm on the Government Industrial Strategy Council, which Andy chairs, is that actually one of the things driving low productivity was people not changing their jobs often enough. So people staying too long in jobs that were not great jobs and the fastest way to increase your salary and to increase your productivity is simply to change jobs because you're likely to go to a slightly better job and new challenges and all that. Then why you, when you look at why people don't change jobs, it turns out this isn't probably an issue, an issue to do with employment regulations or welfare regulations. It's probably primarily to do with housing, which is that if you move from an area of low housing demand to an area of high housing demand, you will end up eating up any of your salary gains in kind of higher house prices. Now, The reason I say all of that is is that, again, one of the things we've kind of learned from COVID is some of the countries that have coped best are the ones which have strong decentralization, where local cities have had the capacity to take leadership, and that's been part of their resilience. So Annalise first, and then to you, Martin, how important is decentralization to the economic agenda in a kind of post-Covid world, that we do need places to be more able to be in charge of their own economic destiny, given how incredibly, I mean, we have the widest economic disparities, regional economic disparities in Europe, for example. So first to you, Annalise.
0: I mean, it's clearly critically important. It was important before this crisis and it's even more significantly important now. Um, and I think it's it's not just critical around some of the issues we've been talking about connected to good and decent work and local housing infrastructure um, and people's ability to actually get into the labour market at a level that matches their skills and experience. Um, I would say it's also critically important because of what will need to be an eventual transition obviously to a circular economy given the climate crisis and other environmental imperatives And I think we've seen really in in the UK over the last few weeks that um, sometimes intermediate institutions have come in at a regional level to try and coordinate uh, economic challenges. Um, So we've seen, for example, in, in where I'm talking to you from here in Oxfordshire, that the local LEP and councils and others and trade unions and business groups, they've been working together around some of the production challenges with protective equipment. Um, but that is a really big gap, I would argue, in the UK's set of circumstances compared to many other nations where you've got that much more developed machinery already there. Um, and I think, again, you know, it's interesting just thinking today uh, where we will have the unemployment statistics coming out tomorrow. I've been talking to many of those regional level actors in the UK, as you'd anticipate, and they already have. You know really interesting plans and ideas about the kind of employment support that will be needed in their area you know if you think about um a place like blackpool for example where very very high levels of employment in hospitality um you know lots and lots of people unfortunately quite quite far away from that jobs market even before this crisis hit crisis hit very very different circumstances from say somewhere like crawley lots and lots of people loads but traditionally people coming quite quickly into the jobs market um, so we need to have that certainly that decentralized approach um, I don't feel we've got the institutions ready there yet uh, so we need to work on that very quickly indeed.
1: When you say the institutions Annalise does that suggest that you think that we do need to think again about regional coordination in terms of economic policy?
0: Well, I, I would say even before that, I mean, I, I wouldn't get hung up around the structures and that can take a very long time, of course, to work through. But um, I suppose you might expect me to, to to say this as a Labour politician, but some of the the work that local authorities in particular are just starting to do around, you know, looking at, I mean, they've been given responsibility for a healthy start and a safe start to their local areas by central government. So They're having to plan what's city centres, town centres can look like, how they can be safe, um, but they don't have any kind of income certainty. I think, you know, we, we do need to be providing the resources for this to happen. I think that would be good value, actually, in the long term to enable that kind of tailored response that's necessary.
1: So, so Martin, I want to turn the question to you, but I'll give it an extra spin because I want to refer to the kind of core thesis of your book, because uh, as I understand reading the book, I didn't realise until I read it, that in many ways, one of the things you really want to drive home in your book is that globalisation doesn't have to be a problem if the domestic policy is a right. So you're responding to the rise of anti-globalisation on both the left and the right. So I'm interested in your sense about where economic power needs to lie if you want a system which addresses the concerns that we've been talking about the global level, the national level, the local level. One of the things we talk about in the blueprint report is, is workers' rights to data, for example. And when I, read a whole, when I read, as I seem to do every day, lots of reports about the future after the pandemic, one of the points everybody wants to make is that the great global American technology giants will have even more power mm. because they can suck up even more firms. Have, they've got enormous capital reserves. So this, this question of economic power and where it should lie, Martin, uh, I'm fascinated by your perspective on that.
2: How to do justice to your questions, uh, very big questions. But, but let me just pick up where you started the previous question on how one problem, one, one obstacle to productivity is that people don't change jobs enough. I mean, a different way of saying that is that people are stuck in bad jobs. And that, that might often, that description may do more justice to how it's experienced. Which are the countries in in Europe that have the fastest job-to-job switch rate? They're Denmark and Sweden. Danish workers change jobs much more often than UK workers, for example. Uh, Now, why is this? It's because the Nordics, they also... They make it easy to switch jobs. They help people switch jobs. They spend the most on active labor market policies that are designed to help people find a new job. They probably also have the security at the bottom that I talked about earlier. For some people, it's expensive to switch jobs, right? If you can't leave one job on a Friday and go to the next one on Monday, that may be because it's in a different city, but it may not be. It may just be because it's not available that Monday. You have to go two weeks without a paycheck in between and you might not have that money. So, so these issues all go together. And, and of course, the Nordics are very good at spending a lot of money on training, education, having high general transferable skills, which this country has let too large a share of the population uh, be without. Now, all of that can be fixed or can be addressed even at a central level. Right? So you can have policies to make it easiest to switch from worse jobs to better jobs, even at the national level. There's no you know, your, your institutional, your division of power between levels is not an excuse for not doing that. But on top, of course, we have many countries have problems with vast regional inequalities. Some regions just have much worse paid, less productive jobs than, um, than the big cities. Uh, and it's really about productivity again, because you can redistribute income from London to the regions. But what you really want to fix is the big gap in productivity—that the jobs in the regions aren't as productive as those in London—and in order to make that happen, you do need to have powers at the right levels. That that doesn't only mean that doesn't simply mean letting the local level do everything. Uh, I think a lot of it really has to do with having the central level and the local level work together on the sort of things they can do. I mean, it's very hard, but one goal has to be to make left-behind areas attractive places in their own rights for the sort of jobs that are the cutting edge jobs in the modern economy high paid high productivity high skilled knowledge jobs so you need a sort of critical mass of those in left behind areas to turn them around rather than you know hoping to go back to the jobs of the past that that requires local knowledge you know you need local authorities and the 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 places that have done this, not just in the UK, but elsewhere, places that have done this successfully have been the one where there are local leaders that both understand what the opportunities are. So you think about Grand Rapids, Michigan as as an example, where you have these anecdotes of cling film manufacturers being turned into medical wrapping manufacturers. They managed to to maintain some manufacturing expertise by upskilling it. But of course you also need responses at, at central level. Part of that is investing in infrastructure to connect these places, but, but that's not all. There really has to be a concerted national policy to, uh, to bring some of those skilled jobs, make them viable in, in more places than just the capital. One thing that seems to work is to put research institutions, research universities in peripheral regions, and that seems to create this critical mass, enough jobs that it builds on itself but to bring this to the global level the success there will be for these you know turned around left behind areas we're hoping for to be part of the global economy to have things that there are there is demand for globally some you know if it's manufacturing it's some specialized high skill manufacturing product that can sell everywhere or it can be a service it can be coding it can be we don't know what it's going to be But for it to be really productive, it's going to be something that's plugged into the global economy, not not cut off from it. So this is just one example of why I say globalization is not the enemy. If you get the national and local policies right, globalization helps you along the way because it creates those further opportunities. You don't want to cut yourself off from the world, and you don't want to cut the most suffering places off from the world. They're too cut off as it is, not just from the world, but even from the capital. You want to connect them and you want to connect them to the global level as well.
1: So Annalise, last question for you. Um, You know, anti-globalization or the reaction against globalization really started on the left, actually, and then was adopted by populists of different kinds of persuasions. We obviously are now going to start focusing a bit more, hopefully, if the pandemic is receding on Brexit. I'm just interested in... As Labour's economic policymaker, chief policymaker, what, what, where, is, where are your instincts in relation to globalisation? Do you share the view of those who think that there is some kind of trade-off between what is sometimes called hyper-globalisation and the capacity of countries to protect their own uh, populations?
0: yeah you're not going to like this, but I think it does depend on what we call globalization surely um uh, and I shouldn't really say this with Martin uh, on the call because obviously he's done a lot of thinking about um exactly what the core elements are i mean i think if we if we suggest that liberalization you know the extension and growth of untrammelled markets to an extent, if that has to be a component of globalization, then obviously that does pose. A number of issues um, and, and they're, they're fairly obvious ones that the left has rightly been campaigning on um, but if we instead are talking about globalization as increasing international connectedness then I think we're in quite a different space actually and you know a more interesting one um, I mean I think there are few who would suggest that you know for example um, the power is some of those very very large companies that you talked about which I mean it's, it's an obvious point but you know easily in terms of the resources that they can corral as much as that of uh, some different uh, low-income nations um, the extent to which they can play countries off against each other if we were to suggest that shouldn't be tackled clearly that would be problematic. Um, I suppose where there might some might say that there's um, kind of a discussion even of that, that more limited conception of globalization which I think is a more interested one i.e. international Interconnectedness is around discussions on around onshoring that are occurring currently, um, and I'm I'm skeptical about some of these because I think, you know, clearly again from an environmental perspective, we should be seeking to shorten many supply chains when we can if that reduces uh, transport intensity um, and use of carbon, makes a more circular economy. Um, but just talking about reducing those supply chains for their own sake, for example, through imposing additional trade barriers, you know, the likely impact of that most of the time is that you're just going to disrupt those supply chains and lead to businesses folding. So um, I think, you know, this is becoming a bit of a a kind of buzz phrase currently around um, onshoring without necessarily thinking through what the implications are and whether it's really um, always going to be in the interests of uh, UK businesses, you know, some contexts and and indeed UK jobs, some contexts it could be um, particularly if it's allied with those environmental imperatives, but in other contexts, um, I really don't think that it would be at all.
2: pick up very, very quickly. Very quickly. Martin. just, just yeah. because it, it's such an important point that that Annelise makes that the way I would phrase it is that we should not allow there to be a confusion or a conflation between globalization and deregulation. These are different things, but there are a lot of people who who want it to be the same thing. It's the anti-globalist left want to conflate them because they don't want deregulation and the pro-globalist right will conflate them because they want deregulation, but they'll argue in favor of globalization as a way to get it. These are different things. So you can open up to trade, to migration, to investment while imposing strict standards. And there's nothing anti-globalist about making sure that the same standards apply both to homemade and foreign production or workers, for example. So, so these are very separate things, and it would do us all a favor to be able to to treat them as separate things.
1: Well, what, what, what better way to end our conversations than than by exploding a false uh, dichotomy? Um, look, I, I, I wish we were having this conversation as part of a weekly blog, a weekly podcast, because I could talk to both of you for, for ages, and we've only touched the surface of some of these questions. It's been absolutely fascinating conversation, so thank you Uh, so much for the time that you've uh, uh, given us, uh, Martin and Annalise. If you're watching along today, do head over to the RSA website now to find more details on Martin's book, The Economics of Belonging, which comes highly recommended and certainly should be on every policymaker's desk. Alongside, of course, a copy of the RSA Future of Work Centre's report, a blueprint for good work, which you'll also find links to on the site, as well as all the latest Bridges to the future policy briefings from our research colleagues across the RSA, in addition to news from our growing global fellowship community. And we'd love to hear your ideas on what's needed to shape the recovery and drive good work in the post-pandemic future. We're very keen to work with local authorities, for example, in thinking about how to manage recovery in a way which minimizes uh, insecurity. So do get involved in the online conversation across social media using the the hashtag Uh, RSA Bridges. So finally, thank you again to Annalise Dodds and Martin Sandberg. Thanks for listening. If you like
0: this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.